Girls, guys, homo sapiens, aliens. Have you reviewed restaurant fiction yet? Well, do it on iTunes. If you feel inclined not to leave a review, it's okay. It's okay. Just rate us. That's all we ask. Faden? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action! What's going on, everyone? This is Restaurant Fiction. What's that? Oh, just a little podcast where we review fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs, as well as dive deep in the screenwriting process. Today's fictional bar and restaurant and even club, yes, it's all three, is a nondescript bowling alley in Ohio. It's called the Stucky Bowl. It was prominently featured on the NBC dramedy called Ed. Remember that? We're talking to one of the co-creators of the show, John Beckerman. This was an incredible interview. Though I love all the guests on Restaurant Fiction, in the back of my mind, I have a top 10. Yes, I admit it. And guess what? This episode, it's up there. I'm not telling you which ranking, but it is. John goes in the trenches of making his baby Ed. He also goes in the gutters of all of his bowling attempts. But if you don't have time to listen to the almost 30-minute interview, just skip to the last eight. Yes, I am telling you to skip. Why? Because John's words of wisdom on resilience and his analogy of Charlie Brown is unlike any other, anything I've ever heard in my life. Okay, enough. This is the review of Stucky Bull and my review with John. We were in Ohio. That is right. We went all the way to Ohio. Why? Because we wanted to bowl. Why would uh, somebody go all the way to Ohio to bowl? Well, why not? You know, we were living in interesting times because nowadays with the millennials and the hipster movement, they're really gentrifying bowling alleys everywhere. And really, if uh, you don't go to, say, a hipster gentrification bowling alley with craft cocktails and such, you're really getting a one-star Yelp review or a one-star TripAdvisor review. But, you know, here at Restaurant Fiction, we do not judge. We like them all. Plus, if the bowling alley in Ohio, specifically the Stucky Bowl, um, uh, is okay with the dude, then it's okay with us. Not saying the dude ever uh, bowled there, but if he ever did, he would abide. So anyway, this bowling alley that we went to, it's called the Stucky Bowl. A little history for all of the viewers out there who don't know. It was bought, you know, from previous owner from, you know, it was on sale in 2000. And you would expect a huge restoration. Did any of that happen? Not really. The balls still are kind of off balance and they have that nice, they give you that nice hook. The shoes, they still smell. They're still well worn. You know, pretty much even the, the lanes, you know, there, some are oilier than others. It's really, uh, it's not say up to snuff. Like it's not like the, the best of the best, but it has charm. And it's bowling. 
come on. It's it's the physical sport where you could drink a beer while having some kind of physical activity. What makes a Stucky Bowl a Stucky Bowl is its employees. You're not getting any kind of Nordstrom's or Four Seasons Hotel customer service. But in a weird way, you're getting love. You're getting that TLC. And it's best represented in the food. Are you going to get any kind of uh, farm-to-table whatever? No, you're going to get your fried stuff. What do you expect? Your mozzarella sticks, your fried pickles, your fried fries, you know, your hamburgers, your frozen patties. And you know what? Every single one of those items is made with love. For example, we had on many times, we had the nachos. You know, the fake uh, processed cheddar cheese is carefully spread on every single chip. You know, the refried beans, you know, the, the sour cream. And when we went to bowl, after it was placed in the heat lamp on our table, it was actually placed back under the heat lamp. So when we wanted to sit down, it was hot and as fresh as it could be. Now that is something special. Now every restaurant, even... A bowling alley has a secret menu. On the occasions that we went, they had Kobe steaks. That's right. Actually imported illegally, I don't know how, Kobe steaks, as well as uh, they had some lemon scones. Yes, I mean, all we wanted was some tea with some lemon scones. Occasionally, though, you probably won't get that. Occasionally, the secret menu might just be an open-faced hamburger where there is a nice little picture drawn using ketchup on the patty. Still, that's love right there. Is the Stucky Bowl, uh, is it going to be a world-class mecca? No, not really. But the people here, they love it. And it shows, maybe it won't show in the balls, maybe it won't show in the shoes, maybe it even won't show in the pinball broken machines or the bathrooms, but at least it'll show in the food like the nachos. John, what'd you think? Stucky Bowl. Thank you for, uh, it's not often I get to talk about Ed anymore, particularly since you can't stream Ed. No, you can't. I had to illegally download some stuff. uh, So yeah, don't, yeah, exactly, to rewatch. If somehow anybody is hearing this who is part of whatever decision-making process would allow Ed to be on Netflix, then for the love of God, I will personally, I don't care if I don't see a penny from it, I will literally pay you thousands of dollars to put that show on Netflix. I would be so happy if people could watch it um, in some legit way. We're doing this podcast right now in the heart of Los Angeles. And guys, Los Angeles has some hipster, some pretty bougie uh, bowling alleys. I I am not a big fan of the current bowling alley thing. I can barely afford to bowl in the, in the bowl. You know, I, I have two kids. And every now and then I want to take them bowling. And I'm shocked at what it costs to bowl. It's like, it's nuts. It's like you're going out for like bottle service at a club or something. For me, and I think I can speak for Rob too here, when we were first talking about the show, we decided to set it in a bowling alley 
the reason was a hundred percent to do with uh, nostalgia. With I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I grew up in a neighborhood called Squirrel Hill, and there was a bowling alley called Forward Lanes. It was just this rundown place. You had to go up a flight of steps to get there. It seems weird that a bowling alley would be like on the second floor of a building, sort of, but I think it was. I don't know what was under that and who had to listen to it all day. But Forward Lanes was like. It just evoked something dilapidated, but charming and sort of soulful and real kind of place that I went a bunch of times as a kid. I remember there was a big, it was like a big painting of the guy who used to own or run the place. And I remember his middle name, I'm pretty sure his middle name was Bud in quotes. Although if I'm wrong about that, I I hope somebody will correct me. Um, But it was just like that kind of place. What is your bowling score? When Rob and I set a show at a bowling alley and we got to shoot in a real bowling alley, I imagined, all right, I'm finally going to get good at bowling. I'm going to bowl all the time. Rob and I are going to bowl. It's going to be great. Ed, it was a very demanding job for us. And I remember at one point in the first season while we were shooting it, Rob and I were like, we need a break. You know what? Let's, let's go bowl. And so we, we went over to the set. Nobody was really there. They weren't, you know, in production on that set at that moment, of course. And we found some balls. We got all excited. And then we hear some, like, security guard or somebody who was working there approach us and say, guys, uh, they don't want you bowling in here. And we were like, it's your set. Oh, on one hand, we, we were like, well, are we they? And on the other hand, we were like, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, it's a, you know, a hot set. And like, maybe there's some continuity issues with like how many pins are standing that we don't know about. And so we cheapish, we sheepishly were like, uh, okay, sorry, sir. And we just like put the balls back where we found them. And we just slunk away out of the bowling alley. <laughs> and so that, that was, um, yeah, you know, you kind of think, all right, you know, it's sort of like we own a bowling alley, and it, it turned out not so much. I don't, I don't remember ever actually throwing a ball down one of the lanes there. The show that you created, you got kicked out of the set, yes. pretty much of your own show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which tells you something about my status in show business. But there no. you go. Yeah. What, what would you order? to eat and drink at Stucky Bowl. I mean, you, you mentioned in general the fried stuff. What about Stucky Bowl? Same goes for Stucky Bowl. You get the nachos and all that? Yeah, I mean, my mind goes straight to mozzarella sticks when you ask me that question. Really? Yeah. But, for like, the combination of fried and cheese, it, like, I honestly, my mouth is watering right now. I'm having a little trouble speaking because... I just, I can't even think about mozzarella sticks without really, really wanting some. I like nachos very much too. I don't think I'd go for the burger at Stucky Bowl. Not even when they paint like uh, a nice little pictures with ketchup on the... <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, that is good, but good to look at. I don't know how good to eat. I'm picky about where I get my burgers. I love burgers, but I don't really eat burgers unless I'm at a place that's just known for having like phenomenal burgers and then I'm all over it. And I'm not sure Stucky Bowl is that place. I see Stucky Bowl as yeah, like nachos pumped out of that big the vat of Velveeta cheese or yeah. whatever it is. The, I always you know, imagine the, the, that that cheese like it doesn't the staff does not 
refill that for with fresh cheese. It just comes from like a pipe, like underground, like the same way you get your, your like gas or your uh, you know water or whatever. Like I just imagine that that's where the cheese comes. There's some central cheese, you know, utility that that stuff gets piped <laughs> to different places. Bro. John, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good though. Oh, it's the best. I love it. I love it. You're, I, I think you're probably starting to learn that I love cheese. When you're creating Ed with, mm-hmm. uh, with your partner. Rob Burnett, yes. Rob Burnett. How was a bowling alley decided versus, say, because usually one would think, or at least of the time, one would think, oh, a guy owns a bar, a guy right. owns a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember thinking about anything else but a bowling alley. I don't remember whose idea it was specifically, but it just it's the sort of thing that I think immediately felt right, partially because we hadn't seen it before, partially because it just it felt like the kind of town we wanted to write about um and the kind of guy we wanted to write about. It just felt like that's what he would have been doing on the weekend with his goofy, you know, buddies would have been, you know, just hanging out for a few hours at a bowling alley. Bowling isn't cool, you know. I mean, now they try to make it cool. There's been a real effort there. And every few years, it's funny, even when we were doing the show, we would be interviewed by people wanting to write a story about a big resurgence in bowling. Like, is bowling coming back? It feels like that's a story people always are kind of wanting to report for some reason. But I think we wanted to write about it because it wasn't cool. Bowling's pretty dorky. I mean, like Fred Flintstone bowled and like Archie Bunker. And they're not like slick guys. They're just like regular dudes, you know, or the dude himself. I always was really attracted to the idea of a town that felt a little behind the times in order, as a setting for a story, you know, a guy who was kind of trying to time travel back into a time in his life where he felt happy, where he felt like he knew what he wanted and uh, had gotten off track. What were some of the challenges working on Ed and what did you learn from them? You know, I think the challenge of Ed, what was it even about? You know, it was hard to get, it was hard for us to come up with stories for that show. Like the legal cases were one thing. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but anybody, any talented writer can come up with, all right, here's an interesting little legal case where Ed can represent an interesting client. What's much harder is, what is the rest of the show? It was just kind of a bunch of stuff about life, you know? I mean, the show hung on sort of the relationship of Ed and Carol, who was played by Julie Bowen. Look, if you're doing a show about are we going to solve a murder, then the stakes of that are clear. Your characters have to solve a murder. Anybody can think about what obstacles could come in their way of solving a murder or whatever. One of the best episodes we ever did was uh, an episode Rob wrote. It, It was just about Ed feels old. Ed feels old, and he decides to run up this mountain that he used to run up. That's not really an episode of television. It's more like a little independent film. And the problem with Ed was, since there was nothing really driving the season as a whole other than, gee, will Ed end up dating Carol? And since 
individual episodes could not have anything that serious because it was a light show kind of, you know, setting the stakes for whatever it was about. We had to fill, you know, an hour minus commercials, whatever, 40, you know, some minutes of television with narrative every episode. And it was really hard to figure out, well, what the heck was that going to be even? What would feel substantial enough to carry the episode without feeling like, uh, this has taken a weird turn. You know, I, I remember in some of the later seasons when the writers did have more of a voice on the show. We did stories that Rob and I were ne- would never have done, really. But I now understand why the writers wanted to do them. It was because they were like, well, what is this show even freaking about? Like, we need stakes. We need something to draw you in and like make you wonder, geez, what's going to happen? You know? And Ed was just never, when Rob and I did it, it was never a what's going to happen type show. And in the same way that like a movie like Lady Bird, you know, which I saw recently and really enjoyed, it wasn't like I'm sitting on the edge of my seat wanting to know what was going to happen. It was just, here is somebody's vision of, here's what life feels like. A little snapshot into someone's experience of life. There's a reason why Lady Bird is a little movie. I mean, there's a reason why Ed was a little show and like Law and Order was a big show. Look, I think television is about story. You really need story. And we were just doing a show, you know, not to get into the weeds with you, but you did ask. I think we were doing a show where the generation of generating story was really, really, really hard. So it all had to be about tone and finesse. It all had to be about voice, in other words. Like there was so little story that it it was an hour of voice. And the hardest thing is to get a writer to emulate exactly your voice. And we felt like, well, if they weren't doing that, what was left? The show was nothing without voice. Like voice was the show. That's my take on it, looking back at it. I mean, really, I think it was a slice of life show. Right, it exactly. Was, it was, you know, life on Main Street in a way, like a Norman Rockwell kind of-esque in, in the POV of your main character. There was no real conflict on the show, by the way. Did Ed and Carol really have different personalities or different views of the world or whatever? Not really. They were super compatible. Ed was a nice guy. Carol was a nice woman. The show wasn't built on a relationship where you could just say, oh, I get it. One of them is messy and the other one's neat. And we'll write that every week for, you know, 10 years. It was a really, really hard show to pull off. And I'm amazed in retrospect. I mean, I credit us, I guess, for even pulling it off as long as we did. It was super hard. And you look at TV now and ask yourself, like, how many slice of life shows are there even? How many of them are hits? At the time, uh, Gilmore Girls was was another show that was similar to Ed, and I think we even I think they had things going for them that honestly that we didn't that made their show more sustainable. And in fact, it did run longer than Ed did. And I now I'm watching it from beginning to end with my whole family and. We love it. We did review Luke Steiner, by the did way, you at re- Restaurant <laughs> Fiction. Oh, yes, I, yeah. I'll have to listen to that episode. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, like I love Luke Steiner. I mean, like there, there was such a kinship really between those shows. And even, even I think the writing was not 
all that dissimilar. What was very smart about the architecture of that show is that that show, they had romantic storylines, right? You did watch the show to see, oh, who is Lorelai going to date? Who's Rory going to date? But the show was based on a relationship of a mother and daughter. And that was the that's what that show was really about. And that relationship never goes away. And that relationship doesn't have like a will they or won't they aspect. It's just, it's permanent. That was something Ed didn't have. When you're doing a show like Ed or Moonlighting or, you know, some of the other kind of romantic comedies that have been tried on television, I just feel like right from the jump, you're limiting your shelf life. You're right from the outset, you're saying, and prove me wrong, like you can find a counterexample. But even something like Cheers, Shelley Long left yep. and it became, you know, Kirstie Alley. What would have happened to Cheers if she had never left? I wonder. Maybe it was, you know, awesome that she left. If you're starting a television show and the stakes of the show are, are these two humans going to end up a couple? And those are the only stakes of the show. I think you're in trouble because I think those things are like, they're like rockets that burn really hot for a short period of time. And then inevitably with zero exceptions, they fall. You know, I think of Felicity too, which was a little bit before Ed in which I was, I was, a you know, I saw every episode of Felicity. I loved it. Yeah. That was JJ Abrams and uh, Matt Reeves. I read uh, an interview once with JJ or heard him say that when he was doing Felicity, he kept finding himself thinking, oh my God, I just wish Felicity were like a spy or like, you know, secretly a superhero or something. That way I could tell stories about being a young woman, but I would also have this other layer to it of, you know, not just stakes, but like where everything didn't have to be so literal, you know? And then he made Alias, which was exactly that. It was, here's a show about a young woman, like a college kid, basically, who, you know, has this whole secret life as like this spy. That decision on JJ's part was super smart and makes so much sense to me. Um, you know, Felicity was on for what, like four seasons. And that, and that was, you know, like Ed and, and that was such a well done show. But like, you know, if you're, if your show's an hour long and it's basically just about who somebody's going to date, you can do it for a while, but you can't do it for, <laughs> for all that long of a while. How do you stay uh, consistently creative and not plateau? <laughs> you're assuming I haven't plateaued no, um, or that I don't think I have. No, I, I mean, honestly, like I, uh, that's a great question. And I am pretty resilient when it comes to my creative work, which if you're not, I think it'd be very hard to function in this business at all. You are mostly going to hear the word no. You're going to get really psyched about things that will then end up being nothing, you know, or half of something or, you know, an eighth of something. The only person driving your career is going to be you. Like, it's all about what ideas you, you have, you know, what things you get excited about. Unless you have the capacity to rebound quickly from the word no, and where do ideas come from? I don't know. They just come. When I come off a no, I often feel like, 
geez, but that was a really good one. I'm never going to think of something that good again. And then two days later or a week later or a month later, I will have something that I like twice as much. And even the distance of a month or two will make me think, oh, that thing that I was so psyched about that got the no, I don't know. It was pretty flawed or I see why they said no or whatever. I would encourage people to just develop whatever that muscle is that allows you to kind of compartmentalize failure and just, look, you're doing this because you love thinking about ideas, because you love thinking about stories or funny situations or, you know, funny characters, whatever it is that drives you as a writer. You have to be able to keep scratching that itch and not worry so much about what the outcome is going to be. You know, I've had a lot, I've had some you know, reasonably big successes and I've had a lot of failures. That's just the way it is. You know, I'm lucky to have had any success at all. You just got to not dwell on it and follow the inspirations that you have and, you know, hope that you have whatever it is in your brain that in Charlie Brown, there's the thing of Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown, right? Every time he thinks, he thinks he's going to get to kick the football and she always pulls it away. And, I think the way people read those comics is, oh my God, Charlie Brown is so, he's, he's so, not that he's dumb, he's just so deluded. He's like, how can he be so naive? How can he be so trusting in Lucy? Like, how can he fall? You know, fool me once, shame on, you know, you fool me twice, shame on me. What is the matter with this guy? Well, when I look at Charlie Brown, I see someone to aspire to because the only way to succeed in show business, I believe, especially as a writer, is to be Charlie Brown. Because if you walk up to that football and by walk up to a football, you know, substitute, pitch an idea, you know, go into a meeting, you know, write a script, whatever. If you do that without the full expectation, the full Charlie Brown-like optimism that this is the time that it's going to work out for you, you've got to have that or else you, you won't do a good job. You have to believe in it every time. You have to be Charlie Brown. So I think there's something like, there's something fantastic about Charlie Brown. The fact that he has that in him to run up to that football with full confidence I applaud Charlie Brown. I think he's doing something right. It's Lucy that sucks. You know, Charlie Brown's awesome. Lucy's the one who sucks. And show business kind of sucks. You know, it just does. I mean, I've been lucky in it, but it sucks. It's, you know, it's a business where you get your ass handed to you all the time by people that you don't even admire, you know, whose opinion you don't even respect or admire. It's like, who, who are these people? And they're saying no to me, but you've got to be Charlie Brown and, and kick that football. And you know, just like the optimism, just like the employees at Stucky Bowl, who you got to believe you're going to bowl a strike when you go up to that line, you got to believe it or you never will. There we go. Yeah. Beautifully done, my friend. Oh, you yeah. brought it back to bowling. I oh, love it. Oh, yeah. All <laughs> right. So awesome. Awesome. Okay. So some behind-the-scenes notes of this interview. That Greek restaurant that John and Rob dined at when writing Ed, it's called The Greek Village. It's in Northvale, New Jersey. All right. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. 
Be sure to check out other episodes and reviews at www.restaurantfiction.com. I'm your host, Monis Rose, and as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to exterior, interior, restaurant, bar. Nothing screams summer louder than a fresh hot dog from Circle K. Now, for a limited time, Ballpark Franks are only $1 each. Add your favorite topics and make it your own. Only at Circle K. Take it easy. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's the Labor Day sale at Ace. Right now, buy one, get one 50% off on gallons of our top paint and stain brands, like Valspar, Clark & Kensington, Cabot Stain, and Magnolia Home Paint. And with our Ace Extra Mile Promise, we'll help you get everything you need to paint in one trip, or delivery is free. Don't miss the Labor Day sale. Buy one, get one 50% off our top paint and stain brands. Now through Monday, only at Ace. At participating stores, limit two. Paint and stains can be combined. Delivery subject to availability. See acehardware.com for details.